Hey y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 67. We've got a fun interview coming at you today. We get into the nitty-gritty of the various subgenres of metal, the strategy behind creating a selected discography, niching down to focus on music that you're passionate about, and how being a prepared client brings the best out of everybody. But before we hit all that, I think it's time for our yearly anti-perfectionism rant. Every season needs a twist on why perfectionism is bad for your career, right? So... Let's start with the question, what is perfect? What does perfect mean to you? If you're a mix engineer, what is the perfect mix? A producer, what is the perfect beat? A songwriter, what is the perfect top line? Some of you may know an artist signed to a label whose A&R has them in the studio writing song after song after song, trying to shape the perfect debut album. So there's one huge problem with all those, quote, perfect things. There's no feedback to determine if something is perfect. Also, let's just put it out there that perfect can't exist, period unless you're talking about something that has defined characteristics. Something like a circle or a square. Those are perfect. They have rules. So, with that in mind, there is surely no such thing as a perfect song or a perfect mix. So stop going after it. Now, if you want to get technical, I guess you could say that there is a perfect four-on-the-floor kick drum, if it's quantized, or uh, maybe a perfect clave, although there's still variations on the clave. You can't even say that there's a perfectly tuned piano. Because a piano that is literally perfectly tuned doesn't sound as rich as one that is stretched at particular octaves. So to get back on track, I guess let's replace the word perfect with the word great. Although that's still fairly subjective and maybe not the best choice. But regardless of the word we want to use to describe it, nothing can be perfect in a bubble. You don't know if something is great if you never finish it. And that's the problem with perfectionism. It prevents you from actually finishing anything because you are in search of an undefinable characteristic. And without ever finishing something, you'll never receive any feedback on your work, and hence you'll never learn and you'll never grow. Sure, you have bandmates, managers, producers, and friends who might be inside your bubble of creation. But we all know that humans can become a bit hive-minded, right? If four out of five band members think something is perfect, there's that word again, then the last person on the team is surely going to end up agreeing with them, right? And I don't want you to think that I'm saying that you need validation from the outside world to determine if something is great. I mean, yes, if you write a song and people all over the world fall in love with it, then it's probably safe to say it's pretty great. But I'd still argue it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And remember, not every piece of music you make is going to connect with every person in the world. Every person has their own tastes and preferences, and there is an audience, large or small, for everything. So you can't let great be defined as worldwide success either. A better definition of great might be something that you're proud of, something you enjoy, and something that you're confident represents your art and ideas. That's the best you can do. You can't create perfect. You can only create something you believe in. I did an experiment a couple years ago. I decided that I would be done with a mix, print it, and send it to the client the first time my gut said, this feels great. And that I would not continue on perfecting vocal EQs and quarter dB rides for another eight hours. The result... I actually started getting less mix revisions. Those last eight hours were only to make me feel like it was perfect, even though I had something that I believed in long before that. Without doing that experiment, I'd probably still be doing mixes in two or three times the amount of time it takes me now. So I guess my point is that you have to be done and move things down the line. Other people have to react to your work before it can be real. A song on a hard drive isn't real. A mix that you obsess over isn't real. It needs to continue its journey. Think about this. When you drive somewhere, you don't design the perfect route to get there, then perfectly drive the speed limit, and stay perfectly equidistant between the lines. No. 
Nobody does that. You just go where you're going. You're probably going to hit some traffic. You might miss a turn. You might park at an angle. But none of that matters because you got there. So what if you took that same approach to your music career? You've got to get on the road and start driving. Just go to where you're going. You can't obsess over striving for perfect because, like I said, perfect can't exist in a bubble. Today's guest is Los Angeles-based musician, producer, engineer, and mixer Alex Crescioni. Alex currently works out of his studio Stygian Sound, which is located in the legendary Sound City Complex. Focusing on heavy and dark genres in the metal world, Alex has worked with artists on Cleopatra Records, Pavement Music, Metal Assault Records, Nuclear Blast Records, Napalm Records, as well as collaborated with Meigs Raskin, Chris Collier, Richard Patrick, Sin Kieran, and Tim Palmer. You can hear his work on upcoming releases from Siglos, Our Dying World, Zeist and Croy, and his own project, Swords Say Dominum. So welcome to the show, Alex Crescioni. Hey, Alex. What's up, Travis? Hey. Yes. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We finally meet. We've been trying to do coffee for like nine months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great, too. I brought coffee. Nice. Did you bring coffee? I'm trying to... I love coffee, but I'm trying to like do the fresh juice thing now instead to like wean uh, off the caffeine slowly, but it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> um, what, but uh, just because you drank too much of it, why, why, why are we weaning off caffeine here? Um, I don't know. I just, just one day, like I, I didn't have it and I had the worst caffeine withdrawal headache ever. I'm like, Ooh, that's probably something to fix. So I, I was like, damn, <laughs> I'm way, I'm way more reliant on caffeine than I thought. And it was just like one cup every morning, but for years. And I was like, damn, maybe I should just uh, slowly wean off of this. <laughs> but I haven't yet. And I'll see, I need two, but if I'm in a studio with a coffee machine, like I'm doing like five, it's rough. Yeah. Well, have you, have you ever done a day without it recently? On accident here yeah. or there. Yeah. Do you get those gnarly headaches or no? Not too bad. It's like day two, you know? It usually, it's not so much coffee like espresso. Like, I find a way to have espresso mm. every day. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have espresso, that's when the headache kicks in. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I love the espresso. Probably more mental than physical for me. But, um, yeah. Dude, so you're, uh, you're at your studio now in the Sound City complex. What's going on over there? It's, there's like studios like around the parking lot, right? Yeah, it's all studios. There's literally like one space that is an office. There's like a, a notary on my floor, but all the other ones are production studios, um, recording studios. Everything is just packed with different uh, engineers and producers. It's a really great community here. That's cool. So is it a little bit of like open doors, like you know everybody and people are like hanging out or or people kind of keep to themselves? It's not necessarily like super open door, but you know, as the years have gone by, I've, you know, got to know a lot of the people here and a lot of them have come and gone, but there's still quite a few here that have been here for a while. Like um, Matt Wallace, he's been here for a while. Um, my buddy, my neighbor, uh, Benny Williams, he's a hip hop producer. And then... Matt Chamberlain is directly below me. He's a an amazing session drummer. He's really, uh, he's done so many great albums. Oh yeah, but yeah. There's quite a you know an eclectic array of of uh, individuals here. That's cool. That's awesome. How long have you been over there? Ooh, it's been like eight years. Yeah, nice, crazy. That's a, the you know the one thing I miss about having a studio or working at a studio is like seeing people. You know, it's especially during the pandemic, obviously, it was like a giant pause on seeing people. But uh, I miss that, like, you know, walking by Studio C at Capitol and the door being open and being like, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you since last week or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I miss that a little bit now that I'm in my backyard. But yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, but home studios are awesome too. Like just having the privacy and, uh, you know, not having to really worry about any other noise. Like, yeah, that sounds great too. Well, you know, the oh, we're in LA where the drive time is a disaster. So I'm saving a lot of time on that at least. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that's another thing. Commuting. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you near the studio? Yeah, I'm fortunately I'm about, I'm like a 10 minute drive without traffic. But yeah, during rush hour, it's terrible. Like that's why I try to leave. You know, that's another thing. It's like I, I try to want, I want to get home earlier to spend more time with my girl. But some days like, like, okay, I'm going to get home at 6, but if I leave at 5.30, I'll get home at like 6.30. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. So I just, I ended up waiting yeah. till later anyway. <laughs> it's uh, It sucks, <laughs> but whatever. It's it's like this funny, It's I think it's only if you're, maybe it's just an LA thing, but like I know people that will leave earlier 
or stay later mm-hmm. just to save on drive time, even though like it directly affects yep. you know, how long you're going to be home or whatever. You're like, I don't want to be in the car for an hour and a half. It's awful, yeah. Yeah, it's... All right, well, enough about traffic. <laughs> um, so we got to do a little bit of like your story, how you got into music, and then we can get into all the tangents and ramblings from there. Sure. How'd you get into this? Well, I'll try to make it brief, but basically... Um, <laughs> When I was very young, I started playing classical piano. Uh-huh. My mother started, she played classical music when I was a baby. She played lots of, you know, piano and um, musicals. And I decided to, she she wanted to get me playing piano, so I started doing it, but it was uh, the Suzuki method, which is like by ear. Right. So I learned classical piano, and then I became very interested in guitar, and I picked up a, a nylon string guitar. And um, I really fell in love with that. Then I discovered electric guitar, and then I discovered distortion and like punk and Green Day. And then from there, I discovered heavier stuff like corn and yeah, heavier music. And it just went crazy from there. But yeah, I mean, it's just in my blood. I mean, she, me and my mom, my parents aren't musicians, but they they love music, and you know, it was just in the house all the time. Like my mom loves Prince and, you know, Broadway musicals. So I've just been exposed to it since I was very little and just fell in love with it. And, you know, I I don't play piano really that much anymore. Um, if I need to for production or something, I will. But I kind of regret not staying, like, up to date with that, just, like, practicing. I just discovered, like, the foundation of learning piano is so valuable. Oh, I yeah. mean, as you know, do you play piano? Uh, n- no, I I wish. I wish I would have played piano as a, as a kid for sure. Oh, but it's like once you learn that, I mean, it's really, it's pretty easy to like shift into other instruments. Um, yeah. At least from my experience. But yeah, just having that foundation. Um, so I just really fell hard into rock music. And um, yeah, like my dad showed me uh, the Green Day Dookie album. He had like a tape of it in his car. And I remember listening to that. I was like, holy shit, those guitars sound heavy. And then I, <laughs> here's later, like, discovering corn i was like what the hell is this and just like hearing a seven string guitar for the first time and like the textures on the guitars like it wasn't just distortion it was like this fuzz thing and like that just blew my mind and so i just opened up all kinds of other avenues to uh then i got into the even heavier stuff like technical death metal and cannibal corpse and cradle of filth and all that and then there's just you can just there's so many you can just get so deep with it there's just so many different ways to go but yeah yeah that's that's basically it in a nutshell um yeah and i didn't really do the band thing in high school i I wasn't really into that i just wanted to i just dove hard into metal you know (laughs) so (laughs) that's amazing did you ever see the tangents begin already the video of uh, Green Day like playing in their high school parking lot. No, no, I didn't. One one person is not in the band anymore. It was like the I think it was the original drummer when they were in high school. Anyway, they they slay it, and you're like, shit, that is Green Day. These kids are like 17, and they're just playing in their parking lot. Like, mm-hmm. and there's like five people watching. It's good. You should YouTube it. Hell yeah. But and I wanted to go back to to piano just for our listeners. I agree completely with Alex. Like the way the piano is laid out is like it is music theory. So it's like when you learn how to play piano, if you learn guitar first, like things are kind of backwards and like your inversions, mm-hmm. but piano like really lays it out there. So if you guys are, anybody's considering playing piano, I think everybody should play piano. It should be required. Absolutely. At least just get, you know, a little, you know, like a piano one-on-one, just so you know the basics of chords and it's just so valuable. Yeah. You said you learned Suzuki method and mm-hmm. all by ear. Do you, did you ever read? Do you, do you read at all? I got into it and um, I got heavy into it when I went to, I had private lessons and then I went to Musicians Institute when I um, I studied guitar and audio engineering there. So it's very strict there with reading. Uh-huh. But reading is the type of thing, if you don't keep doing it, you just lose it. So I just, I kind of reg- regret not continuing to practice my reading, but I honestly, I just don't ever need it. To be honest, like I, I'm not. I mean, I can understand, like from your past, like going into if you're doing a big session at Capitol and you're having to follow a score and all that. Yeah, you need to know it. Um, but I just don't need to know it, and um, <laughs> I just don't care. I, I, I'll be honest, I just don't care. I, I don't care either. I can read tabs. <laughs> I can read tabs. Like that's all. Like if I need to learn a song and someone has tabbed it out, or if a, a client has their song tabbed out, then great. Tabs are 
easy. But reading is just, if you don't do it every day, it's just so easy to lose that muscle, you know? Oh, yeah. I was horrible. As soon as you put like two notes stacked in, like single notes, I could ring single single notes. And then you you put two notes in front of me and I just like put my guitar down and walked out. I was like, I can't read that. <laughs> yeah. I can't play those two notes at the same time. Yeah. Yet alone five. So, okay. So you, you said that you did uh, Musicians Institute, you studied production, you studied guitar. You weren't playing in bands when you were in high school. How'd you get sucked into the studio world? Where'd that come in? Oh, I meant in high school, I didn't do like high school band, ah. but I did have like bands with friends. Should have made, Got made it. that clear. Okay. But uh, before I decided, well, actually, while I was at MI doing guitar, I discovered like they also had the audio engineering course. And I, one of my bands I was in while I was at MI, it was a technical death metal band. That was just like kind of a fun college band. Um, we went to record a demo at this sick studio in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. I don't remember the name of it. I think, I don't think it's there anymore, but I just remember becoming fascinated with the process and the engineer was just so knowledgeable. And I don't know, I just fell in love with it right then and there. I'm like, wow. And you know, I'm not like, I'm not really a super outgoing person. I'm not super like, I, I realized too that I wasn't really the type of guy that would want to be doing touring a lot. And um, I just realized, hey, I think this is more my personality. And um, yeah, I just fell in love with it at that session. And then I decided to see if I can get into the uh, audio engineering course at Musician Institute. So I ended up doing that right after GIT. And it started there in college. So I got a, I got a good amount of experience. And then I just kind of started interning after that. I interned at um, Paramount Studios and this other place called um, Private Island Tracks. And then I just kind of started recording on my own and working with my own bands. And yeah, I just kind of snowballed from there. That's cool. So I'm, yeah, I'm making an assumption here, which is always dangerous, but... Um you were probably working in studios that weren't doing the really heavy stuff that you were into and that you loved. Yeah. Did you still like feel like you were getting a lot out of seeing different genres uh, and different people working in some of these spots? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first internship I had, well, I, can't, I think it was the first one. It was at, um, when I was at Paramount, Lincoln Park was in there. And uh, <laughs> like right after I... I left. Um, one of my favorite bands recorded there, so I was kind of kicking myself. But uh, like him went in there <laughs> after. Okay. A few months after I left, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, um, yeah, I did learn a lot, even though it wasn't the music I was crazy about. But the thing about some of the internships is like I was doing more chores. I was like going on runs and getting <laughs> stocking up the studio, going to like, there's some local, oh shit, I forgot which store they would send me to, but I would have to go and get like all of the supplies, like, okay, go stock all the studios with chips and like all oh, that yeah. stuff. Like, so I was mainly doing that and picking up whatever the clients wanted. And so I was rarely in the studio. And if I was in the studio, it was like, here's your food or here's your whatever. So I didn't really get too much technical experience during the internship. Yeah. And I also shortly did an internship at Conway, which was a similar thing, just running. Right. So unfortunately, I didn't learn much technically from that. I did learn a lot, you know, etiquette-wise, but technically, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is like a, the studio etiquette is, um, it's definitely a thing. Yeah, I've 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 had an intern that he was a great he killed it he crushed it but didn't have like the etiquette that I assumed you know that he would have and uh, I remember just doing a session and he was just in the corner just talking to the artist and I was like mm, mm -mm. but the artist was cool with it uh, but I was like okay next week no no talking to the artist next week but um yeah and he was a great he was a great dude great dude I don't want to knock him anyway ramblings so okay now this is my my lack of knowledge, but I also think it's interesting. You mentioned technical death metal. I know I listened to you on Working Class Audio. You were talking about like doom metal. Mm -hmm. Metal has a ton of subgenres. Are they like very specifically broken up into... How, how's it all broken up? Like it kind of reminds me of like electronic music in that sense where there's a lot of different like types. Good question. Um, that's, this, is, this could be a very long answer, but I'll break it up like <laughs> shortly. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's... The sky's the limit with metal. I mean, 
there's still genres I'm still discovering. I'm like, what? I've never heard this before. But, you know, there's like the black metal. There's the death metal. There's this classic, you know, old school death metal. It's like the more modern death metal. There's the Swedish death metal, melodic death metal, symphonic death metal, uh, thrash metal, power metal, doom metal, industrial metal, uh, extreme. It's just anything you could think of really, it exists. But I tend to go towards more of the metal that is like, I like the really intense, not necessarily, when I say extreme metal, or when people say extreme metal, it doesn't necessarily mean it's like the extremity is in or is in the vocal. It, it could mean like it's in the technicality of the drums or like actually the the production and the, the sound of the drums because a lot of the modern death metal, well, it's also, there's a genre called gent, which I'm sure you've heard of. I have, I have not. D-J-E-N-T. That is the genre like that, you know, technically is... I, I believe Periphery coined it, but it is like the genre of Mashuga, which is like that polyrhythmic, okay. rotating polyrhythm in metal um, with like a china on, on the quarter notes and a riff and a, a kick drum pattern and the guitars are following the kick drums. So a lot of bands have copied and replicated or tried to replicate that band Mashuga, which I love, but there's that genre. But what, what I was saying is there are... I like the extreme metal where it's not necessarily the, the extremity isn't in the the vocal, it's in the depth of the guitars, the technicality of the drums, the the sound, like the room sound of the drums, so that it puts you in an actual environment that feels extreme, if that makes sense. Not necessarily mm. what the vocal is doing. Right, right. But yeah, there's just there's endless genres <laughs> of metal. <laughs> <laughs> are they are they generally like are they broken up more like from like a technical performance standpoint or a vocal execution standpoint or like what like how do things get broken down? This good is question. A totally stupid question for me. No, this it's is the, a, the pop guy asking the metal <laughs> the metal guy. <laughs> it's a good question. It's hard. It's kind of hard to explain unless you've like really had a lot of time unless you've listened to all these different examples of death metal and metal. But you know, like industrial metal is. You know, like for example, Rammstein is a great example of industrial metal where it's mechanical guitars, like mechanical drums, but it has elements of like an industrial factory, like cranking machines, like actual uh, metallic sounds going on in the synths. And yeah. like you can, you know, I've even added like there's bands and producers that they'll just add straight up gear sounds like on snares or like, you know, weird metallic hits, just like so that it actually feels like you're inside of a, um, a really loud warehouse of uh, like, I don't know, freaking industrial warehouse where they're making uh, cars. I don't know, just anything that's just <laughs> <laughs> like terrifyingly machine sounding, machine-like sounding. That's pretty cool. Fear Factory is a great example. They're, um, it's extremely like precise mechanical riffs, uh, low-tune riffs and that are super precise and they're following the kick drums, which are at times can be like insanely fast kick drum patterns. And it's just like to replicate a machine basically. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that would be like kind of industrial metal. Um, old school death metal is kind of like cannibal corpse, um, morbid angel, okay. those kind of sounds where it's like a, a more, a more raw, uh, guttural vocal with, um, you know, down to guitars, lots of palm muting, lots of double bass. And, but those like old school, those kinds of death metal bands, they don't, they don't have any, synths or um keyboards yeah and then there's like modern death metal or um deathcore is what they call it but there's a band called um humanity's last breath the, and uh, another band called shadow of intent and it's yeah. like really extreme guitars fast solo bass really guttural vocals but they also have elements of orchestral synths and or orchestral um choirs which that's one of my favorites because it's it has all the elements of it's like you're listening to like a horror movie, but there's really intense extreme metal going on at the same time, and it's just really cinematic and like gargantuan and huge and epic. That's cool. Like that's probably like my favorite style. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it, I was just uh, just you know doing my research and and stuff, and I was like, there are so many. There are so many metals. I have to ask yeah. about the metals. Yeah. <laughs> if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. 
Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Uh, well, since we're kind of on, on the topic, I want to go back to, you know, when you started your studio and stuff. But I wanted to talk about niching down mm. with you because we were, we were kind of texting about that because I feel like you obviously have niched into a genre that you love. I feel like a lot of people in Los Angeles, they will say that they did that. Like, I would say that I niched down just to mixing pop, but I'm also doing like a cinematic thing. Like, I'll grab stuff that just is appealing to me. How have you found, like, your career niched down really tight like this? Did you ever fear that you weren't going to get enough work because you were so specific? Or did you feel like, hey, I'm going to dominate because I'm so specific? How did it all come together for you in that sense? Yeah, that's a great question. It was a gradual niching down. It wasn't just an overnight thing. Like I, and of course my taste and style has changed over the years and what I desire as a producer and a mixer, like my desires of what I want to work on and what I want to hear has changed and it's constantly changing. But I feel like what has happened is, you know, I still take on gigs that aren't metal. Um, I just don't really advertise that or I don't really promote that. <laughs> Because I, I want to be seen as someone that does, you know, extreme music um, because that's what I love. But that doesn't mean right. I won't work with somebody who wants to do just like a rock record or, you know, country. If they need me to track country vocals, I'd be happy to. And at the end of the day, it's like I'm getting paid to make music and that's why I got into this. And I love that also, just overdubbing and tracking. It could be any type of music. Um but I'm mostly getting contacted for different styles of metal. And I think the reason why is I just gradually have tried to put that out there. Like I said, if you're getting paid to work on a country record, but you want to be known as someone who does only metal, just try not to, don't put that on your discography or at least don't, don't put it on your website. That doesn't mean you're not giving all your hundred percent to the client, you know, it's just, and that's the thing, if they know, like I still get people that inquire about working with me, but, and they know everything I've done, but they're like, they're pop or they're whatever. But I think it's because they want to have like a specific edge to what they're doing, um, which is cool too. Yeah. Um, which I'm open for. But yeah, it's just taken years, you know, to be, you just have to, it's just repetition, you know, it's a numbers game. You just keep doing, you know, the projects you love. And I don't, I don't really, I haven't really had to turn down that many things because like I said, most of the stuff that comes my way is, is closer to the music that I like. So yeah, yeah, it's just been a very slow, gradual process. So yeah, I just try to put myself out there as that, you know, <laughs> no, that, that's interesting. It's actually, you know, this is kind of, kind of a stupid aha, but yeah, the, there's like there's an element of branding to it where it's like yeah you can you can do whatever you want but the things that are like front facing is the stuff that you're really passionate about and it doesn't matter that you did a country vocal yeah <laughs> you know it's like nobody because the, because that is confusing like I can think of my own website or or other people's websites where you look at it and you're like oh yeah this guy works in like 14 genres and he seems to do like two records in every genre but if you go to your website you're like oh I know what this guy does. Mm -hmm. Let me let me call him because this is what I'm looking for. And if depending on how you present yourself, not everybody's going to get that reaction. Yeah. So I, I that's a great comment for people to to think about like if you really you want to do one specific thing, you can still do other stuff. You just don't have to put it front and center. That's Right. I can't believe that I never thought of that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, like another guest you've had on your podcast, that's why country came to mind is uh Billy Decker, you know, he he did the same thing. Like he was just saying, yeah, I wanted to be a mixer. So I just told everybody I was a mixer. That doesn't mean he didn't take on overdubbing gigs or maybe master some stuff like, but he just put himself out there as a mixer. And then he became the go-to mixer in Nashville for country or, you know, whatever. So yeah. Yeah. Same kind of mentality, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, the guest, uh, the episode that comes out tomorrow, um, so now we've dated this recording, is uh, Chris Tabron. I don't know if you know him, but he made a comment about like a discography being, like he likes to think of a discography as like a legacy mm. and he wants to like work on, you know, things that kind of paint a picture of what he loves to do. And that's kind of like what you're talking about where you're like, yeah, I might not have it on my credits. These are the 50 projects that I'm passionate about. This is what my discography is made up of, even though I did some overdubs on this other thing and this other thing. I guess the point I'm getting to is putting your full discography up on your website is probably not necessary. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean... I th- if it serves I, the purpose. Yeah, I think most mixers, engineers, people that have been doing this a long time that they have like a lengthy discography, I feel that like 99% of them it's a selected discography. It's not like everything they've done. It's what, it's how they want to be seen and it's how they want to, you know, it's what they want to put out there and it's how they want, what they want to attract your future clients. Like, okay, this is what I'm most proud of and this is the music I relate to the most. So if you relate to it, then let's work together. You know, not like, well, I want to put everything I've ever done on my discography. So there's thousands of things I've done. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I feel like less is more. You know, it's like less of the better projects instead of everything, you know? Right. Well, no one's going to read the whole thing. If you yeah. Got two, two page, no one's going to read the whole thing. So if you can yeah. bring it down to something that that paints a picture of, you know, the person that you are, I think that that's, that's a great idea. Yeah. And so also kind of along the lines of, of niching down, do you find that since you're, you try to stay specific to the music that you're passionate about, do you find that word of mouth is more effective or that a great credit works better for you since you're in a smaller world and people are like, oh, who did this record? Oh, Alex. Okay. Yeah. He did these two records. I got to call Alex. Is it, since it's a smaller circle, does it feel like that's more effective? Um, Yeah, it is mostly word of mouth from my experience and from what I've learned from a lot of other people. But I do think, yeah, if you're like my buddy, uh, Chris Collier, he just did, he got a major producer credit. He did the newest corn album. So of course that's going to bring him a shitload of awesome new clients. But at the same time, you know, he's been working with the, some of the same clients for many years and that's pretty much where I, I'm at. Um, you know, I've just, I try to do the best I can on every project and, you know, the bands that want to refer to their friends and to their, you know, other bands they know, then yeah, that's been mainly how I get new work and new clients. And um, yeah, so I would say it's more word of mouth. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like um, there's like two types of people in this industry. I mean, I guess there's probably more than two, but I feel like there's people that are like solely word of mouth people. And then there are like people that have mastered marketing. I don't feel like there's a lot of people that do both. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's It's really difficult. It's really difficult to figure out what's the best way. I'm just kind of just rolling with it at this point because I've tried, <laughs> I've tried, the, you know, doing ads and the hardcore marketing and like, you know, pushing it out there really hard. And it's just, yeah, maybe I've gotten a couple gigs from doing that, but nothing that's repeated. You know, it's just a one-off gig here and there and it's, it didn't really create the best relationship with the client. So that's true too. I don't know. I'm just more into the I'm trying to relax more and just be like, you know, it's just let things happen, do the best you can, put everything into each project. And, you know, the people that enjoyed it and the clients that enjoy it, they will spread the word and, you know, it'll keep snowballing. So that's kind of my mentality moving forward. <laughs> well, and I, I, I think that that works much better. You mentioned, you know, ads resulting in not a great client experience. That's because it's like you captured somebody that, was looking for a very transactional experience to begin with, as opposed to somebody that's, you know, loves their buddy's record. And then Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, who did your record? They're already a little bit more invested than some person like clicking on Facebook ads or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to pause there. I wanted to go back to when you started your own studio and just kind of went out on your own. Uh, You left MI. You didn't really stay in the big studios long. You just did some internships and some running gigs. Did you just have the whole entrepreneurial mindset of like, hey, I'm going to go start putting a space together and recording bands? Like what made you just jump in and just be like, all right, I'm starting a studio. I'm, I don't I don't want to work in a studio. I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, it, it had to do with what I said before about when I, when I had that session with a, an old band 
that I was in, in, in uh, college and I saw this engineer just like, he was just so knowledgeable and he kind of ran the place. And I was like, damn, that'd be amazing to do one day. And then I met the band I was in that I formed kind of during college. It was a technical death metal band. And um, we were going to go into the studio with Michael Keane. He was the guitar. He's the guitarist of this band called The Faceless, a big um, metal band on uh, Sumerian Records. And uh, he was going to do our first album. And uh, we went and met up with them and uh, saw his space. And he's like, yeah, you know, let's, let's do the record. And this is how much it'll be. And I was like, hmm. And it was just a very modest space. And uh, I was like, shit. And we ended up going with another friend of mine at a different studio, but it that stuck with me. So like these two different experiences and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to get alone and uh, go find a commercial space and uh, build out a studio and just put my everything into it because I knew like this is, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life regardless. Like if, yeah, I'm just going to, throw myself into it basically. And, um, so I was in a space in Valencia for a couple years where I really like started and got my feet wet. And then unfortunately, like I ended up spending more money than I was making. <laughs> so that's easy. Sometimes <laughs> I was like, okay, this is not working right now. Like I'm not going to give up, but I need to get out of this space. Cause it was a lot of overhead for what I was bringing in, you know, like the bands I was working with, they just weren't they didn't have a lot of money. So like getting even a couple thousand dollars out of them for a record at that time was like hard. This was back in like 2008. So I was like, this is really, really hard. So I ended up closing down that spot. And then I, I moved to the Valley and I'd started, um, I had a home studio and I started just kind of doing work out of a bedroom and I kind of set it up. So I did that there. And then I moved again, did a similar thing. And then I finally made it to, Sound City. It's where I've been here for about eight years, as I said. But yeah, I I, I kind of prefer the commercial studio, be, at least for me right now in my life, because I'd like to have that separation of, okay, I'm at work. I'm just going to focus on work. And then when I get home, like I just try my best to turn the work brain yeah. off, even though I know you, I'm sure you know, it's like really hard to separate it. Oh yeah. But yeah, I just I had the entrepreneurial mindset pretty young and and also because my parents run their own business. So I just kind of, I think I did, that was just in my blood. You know, it's like, I'm, yeah, I don't want to work for anybody. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'll struggle through all the hard times and, you know, my blood, sweat and tears and all that, um, which there's been a lot of that, but I have zero regrets because like, it's been so worth it. And, you know, there's still struggles and there's still moments of doubt, but I mean, I'm really glad that I decided to, take the risk and to push through all the hard times, as you know, it can be extremely overwhelming and extremely depressing when you get into those slumps. So yeah. The, the holes get deep in the music industry. Oh yeah. The, yeah. Taking a loan out is, is ballsy. I like that. There's nothing gets you committed like taking a loan out. It's good. Yeah. At the time it, it wasn't that much, but for, I was like 21 and I was like, yeah, for me it was a lot of money at the time. Yeah. Um, now it, it really isn't, but Getting a parking ticket at 21 is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I just really respect that because it took me, I, I was always working for people and I would get frustrated. You know, you were talking about kind of just wanting to be your own boss. And there's, when whenever you finally get to that point in your life where you're ready to be your own boss or you become your own boss, even when you screw up, it's like the most fulfilling shit ever. You're like, that was amazing. That was the biggest failure ever. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I understand completely because you know what I mean? It's a, it, it hurts, but then you're like, wow, I, you, you just, you can learn so much so fast. That's if you, well, if you learn from the mistakes you make and yeah, it's there, I've made a lot of them. So <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, <laughs> I don't, I totally understand what you're saying though. <laughs> yeah. Is there one that sticks out where you like learned the most that you're, you're willing to share? Yeah. The first time I, like, I don't regret my journey so far, but looking back on when I was like, eh, I probably should have, I don't know. I think I just didn't have the, um, strong enough business skills at the time to like be bringing in, like in the marketing and all that to be bringing in enough clients and enough projects to make a decent profit at the time. I was just like, all right, well, I'm going to work with friends, bands and, you know, word of mouth happened back then, but it just wasn't enough to make a profit and save money and make a good living. It was just like, it was really hard. Um, 
Yeah, and I was I was so young, and the bands I was working with were young, and that was yeah, it was ballsy, but I I felt <laughs> like really really like really hard on my face on that one, but yeah, it it just after I recovered from that, I it made me stronger. Then I was like, after that, I was like, yeah, I probably should never. I'm just gonna have a home studio from now on, but from that first experience after going through that, but and, um, I've been at Sound City for a while, so I I don't know, I just had the the courage to try again. So I'm glad that I, I did try again, considering it was such a terrible blow to me in the beginning. So, Well, you know, it's like uh, anybody that's super successful in anything, they'll always tell you that it's just failure after failure after failure. Yeah. But the difference between those people and, and people that don't make it is that they learn from everything. And I think that's the most important part is, you know, like every mistake I've there's, there's things that have happened to me in the studio where I will never do them again. I was embarrassed. People, an engineer would scream at me or, or whatever. I'll never make that mistake again. I felt like a worthless person by the time I was done getting yelled at, but never going to do it again. Yeah, but you're the, <laughs> you know? you're the type of character that understands and learns from the first mistake. Like I, I've seen interns that will do that and they don't learn from the mistake and they keep doing it and then they just don't work because they just, they can't see, you know, that they don't understand the etiquette of it. You know what I mean? It's a uh, true. Yeah, you can't just go up and to an artist you've never met or into a session like this happened to me in one of my last sessions with an artist uh, at the studio I work at. Like sometimes the studio owner will have, without telling me, sometimes they'll just bring in interns and and I'm like, I don't really mind, but the specific artist I was working with, he wasn't feeling it, but. So I had to kind of tell the intern to like, okay, well, you can hang out for a few more minutes, but then you gotta you gotta take off because they just they don't understand. Uh, there's a certain type they just don't understand. It's like, look, we're trying to work, we're trying to be relaxed, we're spending a lot of money. This is a big deal to this artist. We don't want to like get to know you right now, okay? We want to just <laughs> we want to zone the world out and make this record, okay? Just uh, I don't know. It's so yeah. I totally get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, reading a room is like uh is totally a studio skill. Mm. Like to look around and be like these people want to be left alone to chat for about 15 minutes, I'm going to get a coffee. Yeah, you know, stuff yeah. stuff like that you learn the more records you make, you can kind of figure out when you're supposed to say something, when you're supposed to disappear. Uh, but right. uh, yeah, I I always found that interesting where you, you could just look around and be like I'm going to go away for 30 minutes and no one's going to care. Then you come back and it's like a whole different vibe and they're like, we're ready to do the vocal. I'm like, I knew it. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, have you had a lot of mentors or have you just kind of self-taught your way to where you are now? A lot of self, uh, self-taught self um, awesome. engineering and mixing and all that. But yeah, Chris Collier is a big mentor. I mean, he's brought me in some sweet projects. Uh, he's taken me up to uh, Jonathan Davis's studio a few times. Um, to work on some projects. That's the vocalist of Corn, by the way. Um, he's a guy I can rely on if I have a mix. He'll give me he'll give me his honest opinion. Um, I think it's really important to have people that you can just bounce off ideas from, and you know, send over production, send over mixes, and they'll be honest with you. Because like there are people that they'll want to hear what you're doing, but they won't be honest with you. They'll just kind of like say, "Oh yeah, that's great," you know, and they won't really be, you know, be like, okay, well, this could use improvement. This can use improvement because, you know, it's hard to, when you're so deep into a project or, you know, it's hard to really have that objectivity. But yeah, he's been a great mentor um, for the past, I don't know, five, six years now. So he's, That's awesome. I would say, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Collier oh. for sure. That's amazing. That's amazing. Would you, would you encourage like people that are self-taught building their own studios to try to find somebody, even if it's in their like local town, like find somebody else that's been doing it a little bit longer than you to just kind of latch onto a little bit? If you have a good network of people and you already know somebody who is working with bands or even someone that's working with some of your favorite bands, like do whatever you can and in the most respectful way to um, try and insert yourself into their life in a nice way. But like, you know, offer to, you know, take them out to coffee or do whatever and see if, you know, you can pick their brain a little bit. And then if the relationship develops and then over time they'll be able to trust you and then maybe they'll bring you in on a session and you know, you, you do need to have that studio etiquette of course. But at that point, you know, if they trust you 
then yeah, you can go in and I would say that's the best way to learn, learn from the people that are doing the work that you want to do. Obviously, like don't learn from, if you want to make country records, you know, don't, if that's like what you know you want to do, like you want to make country records, like I wouldn't, you know, go and try and get help from an EDM producer, you know? Yeah, you, you might learn a lot, but you might, it's kind of going to put you in that direction. You know what I mean? So just follow your heart and follow what feels right and find the people that are your people, you know? Like yeah. just same way as like your circle of friends, your significant other, like find the people that are in your heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So before we go, I can't not ask you like some kind of technical yeah, uh, please. nerd thing, right? Yes. So you were talking about how you love working in the extreme genres. Mm -hmm. Let's talk guitar. I'm guessing you're probably doing a lot of downtuned stuff. Oh yeah. A, do you have any tips for how to really like keep those things intonated? And then when it comes to like these extreme tones, like what kind of amps, what kind of like moves are you doing on those? Okay. It's a great question. Uh, first of all, like regarding intonation, like make sure your guitar is intonated because I can't tell you how many people come in like with guitars that have needed to be set up like six months ago. They're just completely out of whack, <laughs> you know, and they can't stay in tune like at all. Just take very good care of your instrument and know what gauge of strings uh, suit your playing the best and um, try different gauges figure out which one is just a little too loose, which ones are just a little bit too th too thick, and then like find the middle ground and just, yeah, take good care of your instruments uh, because when you get into the studio, it'll be very clear to everybody that you haven't. So yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, and then regarding amps, a lot of people like to use amp sims these days, like the Neural DSP stuff is really popular. Uh, STL tones, the Kemper stuff is really popular. Yeah, I'm still... um. I'm guess I would I'm guess I'm old school now, but I still like <laughs> actual amps. I still I have a few um tubed heads at my studio. I like I like to use the the fifty one fifty, of course. I have a Laney um VH one hundred R that is just like to me one of the best metal amps ever. That's super underrated. And I have some like old line six Bogner tube hybrid that I never use. But I like hmm. cranking up loud amps and just pumping the air and capturing that and you know there's so many different techniques like miking techniques but honestly i i get a i capture a di and i use a and i capture um through an F sm57 and i just take the time to get the right mic placement and i just keep it simple and i very i very rarely ever reamp or have to like use the di i just i just capture yeah. it just in case um if someone else is mixing it and they want to reamp or use a plugin as well i just get it just to be safe but yeah i just like to keep it simple man and it's all about the performance the song the riffs you could have some really not so great amp and if the player is awesome and they know their parts and like their feel is great and you mic it up right and in the in the mix like it doesn't really matter how expensive the amp was or what kind of amp it is it's just like it's all about the player um so yeah just really pay attention to the intricacies of your playing and yeah, because it's just, it's so overlooked, you know, because once, you know, you're so used to playing in the rehearsal studio or live and you're not really hearing, it's like when you get into the studio, everything is under a microscope and all these, oh, yeah. especially in metal, all these riffs are super technical and uh, fast. And, but once they're exposed and just kind of naked sitting there, like coming out of a speaker in a studio, most of the time it could be pretty surprising when you realize, oh, I'm not as tight as I thought I was, or this riff isn't like, I'm not really able to play this riff as well as I thought. So yeah, yeah it's just all about like, <laughs> yeah, just sitting in at home and practicing the songs and really being self-aware about your playing, like standing still instead of, yeah, like you're used to hearing it with a band, but it's completely different when you're in the studio. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why I, I got into recording, is I recorded myself playing guitar. And I was like, whoa, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to record somebody else. But uh, yeah, I guess the super technical, fast, there must be so much technique, especially with all that gain, to like really get all those notes 
it's got to be super tight. You've got to be really, really good to make that stuff sing. Yeah. Another thing too is gain less is more, in my opinion, like these really, the really killer like productions that your favorite metal productions, like most of the time it's a lot less gain than what you think it is. And a lot of uh, newer players, they're kind of insecure about their playing. So they'll try and hide behind the gain and they'll just mm. have their gain at like 10 or nine. I'm like, and it just sounds like a beehive basically. It's like, look, let's <laughs> dial back the gain. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's like their bass is up, their treble is all the way up, their mids are down, the gain is all the way up. And it's like, no, that's that's absolutely not what you want to do like for a modern metal recording. So yeah, it's like less is more, in my opinion, with gain. Like there's a sweet spot. And um, yeah, that's that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Yeah, you could totally hide behind it because it'd just smear the whole thing. Um, I wanted to ask you a string gauge question. I don't know if you've seen. You're familiar with Rick Beato or Beata? He has a YouTube channel. Mm -mm. Uh, he's a guitar player, but anyway, he did a shootout. It was a Les Paul, and they just they kept playing the same riff, and they were swapping string gauges, mm -hmm. and they went from like eights to thirteens, standard tuning, or maybe like down a half step. I mean, basic. And there's like you get this like mud as you go to the thicker strings, there was like this lower mid buildup, like all that stuff that you take out in the mix, mm -hmm. it comes in with the string, w like with the string gauge and like the smaller, the, the lower gauge strings were like so much tighter in the tone and they kind of like really cut through. But at the same time, like if you've never played eights and you're used to playing twelves and you put eights on your Les Paul, you're going to play awful. But have, yeah. have you messed around with string gauges like that? And mm -hmm. see, I'm a very responsive guitar player, so if the strings are very loose, I will take notice to that and play a lot lighter. If the strings are very, like, to get the sound I'm looking for, if the strings are very thick, then I'll dig into it. But yeah, it makes a big difference. I kind of go more towards the little bit heavier gauges just because yeah. of uh, the tone and the clarity and the tightness, and it kind of forces you to dig in a little bit more, which is great for metal. I don't like really thin, floppy strings yeah. for this type of music. Yeah, But yeah, it does make a big difference in the tone, and it really makes a di big difference in how the player performs, which will which is change the, everything. Yeah, the most important part, you mm -hmm. know, in in the end. But yeah, it's, mm -hmm. I've never seen like a back to back like string gauge. Like, okay, here's eights, here's nines. Here's tens. Here's elevens. And you're What's just, that video called? I want to check that out. It's Rick B. I think it's Rick Beato. Oh, you know what? He's like he's the older guy, right? That has like a shitload of followers, huh? Yeah, he, like, he does like a yeah. bunch of like theory and like total guitar nerd. Yeah, I have seen his stuff. Okay. Yeah, and okay. I'll find I'll find this video. I'll send it to you. Okay. Before we go, I know you posted on Instagram that you were recording this today, and you got a couple questions that you sent me. Mm -hmm. And this one, I actually love this question. So this is from. A follower or or a client, I'm not sure. Somebody that knows Alex. <laughs> uh, but the question is, uh, when in the studio, what traits or habits do you appreciate from a client that you're recording, and what can one bring to the table to make the experience better? It's an interesting question. That's a great question. Um, I would say, first of all, coming into this session prepared and ready to take it seriously. Obviously, yeah. It, we want to have fun and it doesn't have to be heavy and we can jokes can be had and whatnot. But I just really appreciate when people come in prepared and taking it seriously because that means then I can do my job better for you and I can provide a or the best product possible. Like the worst thing is when you've prepared for a recording session and you know someone shows up like not knowing their parts and they're like hungover and they're you know, just completely out of it and not, you know, just not acting professional in any way. And like, that's it. The session's over to me. Like I'm, but I still, you know, you still have to push through it. Um, and it's just, it's not fun for anybody. And uh, so stuff like that, just like being a responsible person and uh, someone that actually is showing that they're taking it seriously. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, knowing all of your, uh, having practiced all your songs, knowing all your parts, having worked everything out. I think the person that asked this question, uh, he's a he's a very great he's a very good guitar player, and he's a perfect ex example of someone who is always prepared and who 
takes it very seriously. So it's a, it's a funny question for him to ask because he's the perfect example. He's like one of the best, <laughs> they're one of the best bands and clients I've ever worked with because they just came in and uh, they nailed, like they just had, were so prepared. They nailed all their takes and uh, they were super sweet and the sessions went great. And, you know, we were, had a great time, you know, laughing and just getting everything done very uh, proficiently like, just very very successful session so nice act apart you know if you want to if you want to do this then you know show your band show you know your producer that that's true you know don't show up like thinking you're you know you can do whatever you want or act like an asshole or not know your parts or it's just <laughs> nobody wants that you know but unfortunately like we have to deal with that and if you want your engineer to provide the best product for you, just do your part and then we'll do our part, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's it, I, I was thinking about that question too while you were answering. And, and uh, yeah, it's easy to set the tone for a room. Like I was definitely on, you know, songwriting sessions where everybody in like the producer is making a beat unrelated to the song that's being worked on mm -hmm. two top liners are on instagram and then i'm sitting there like what am i gonna do i'm gonna pull my phone out because everybody's basically on their phone like the tone of the room is like man we're gonna be here for a couple hours and we're gonna go home yeah exactly and the whole room picks up on it and it's like you think anything got done that day nothing got done but then if you yeah. come in and like super prepared it makes me want to make sure that i kick ass for you because you're obviously really excited it's just like it's a cascading domino effect, and I think it's uh, I, that is a cool question. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so thank you to uh, that person. And then there's one more question. Um, this one's more of just a, a preference for you. Do you feel that you favor one instrument over another to play as well as uh, recording? Oh, that's a great question because it's changed over time. Like, obviously, guitar, uh, but I've really really enjoy tracking bass these days is because it's just yeah. can get really uh creative and with these metal productions i've been doing like i've been experimenting with different um different bass distortions and fuzz and like i put together this crazy pedal board of just different fuzzes and distortions and choruses and shit for bass yeah and it's just so much fun to just that's why I really enjoy if a client wants me to track bass on their production for whatever reason it's just that's probably my favorite because it's First of all, like it's easy and it's fun and it's like it's quick. So yeah. I just love, you know, just running a DI and uh have like a DI and then a separate track of um whatever fuzz or distortion I'm using. But it's just so satisfying just to lay down a really thick, solid bass track over the song and just, you know, have it sit really nicely and just it's so much fun. That's probably my favorite these days. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Bass was my my first instrument. Nice. That's how I got sucked into this game. All right. Well, let's do the traditional progressions ending here. Uh, so I got two questions. I'm pretty sure you know what they are. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah. Um, the time was when I realized that, okay, I can actually do this. And I've worked hard enough to get to the point where people... I'm being paid to do something that I love and people are uh, trusting me with their art. And to me, like that is just unbelievable because I never thought that that would be reality. So that, that is already um, to me a success. You know, there's always people that are super successful or, you know, like the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk of this world, or they still have goals and they still want to, they still have more shit they want to do and more money they want to make. And like, it never ends, but they're like, you know, in modern society, like they're super successful because of everything they've done and the accomplishments they made and like how much money they have. But to me, it's like, there's always going to be another milestone. There's always going to be more money you can make. But I feel like the success is just being able to do what you want and be true to yourself and be able to make a living. That's it. <laughs> that's it for me. It's good. That's, that's what everybody everybody should want so many people get stuck in in the in the rat race and it's just like i would be much happier to make you know less money doing what i love than making more money sitting at a desk you know oh yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean i guess i'm sitting at a desk now but it's it's a different kind of desk um uh, amazing i love it uh so last last question for you is uh what right now is your biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it 
it's uh, a good question. Let's say the biggest goal is to buy a house. It's <laughs> good. It's good. And uh, the step next step to take towards it is saving more money, which is it gets harder and harder every year, as you know, living in Los Angeles. Somehow everything in LA gets more expensive every year. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Um, I would say that's like the most immediate goal um, because you know you could always say like, oh, I want to work with this artist and this artist and this band, and but it's like I kind of realized, yeah, there are there are milestones I do want to reach and other goals that I do have. Like I would like to work with certain artists, but I don't feel like at a certain point it's like I just kind of I'm gonna let the universe kind of take me where it's going to take me because, you know, I feel like if it's meant to happen, it will. And yeah, I'll do what I can to be seen to make it possible. But there's only so much you can do. And, you know, I just feel like the word of mouth and if if things are meant to be, it will happen. And I'm just going to keep working my ass off in the meantime and do the best work I can and try to be the best person I can to, you know, people around me and to my clients. So, Yeah. Buying a house. <laughs> I love that one. That's really good. Like that's a, that's kind of a different answer, but I, I love it because that topic doesn't really come up as much as it does on maybe like Matt's show where they, you know, he really gets into like financial decisions. But mm-hmm. I just, I, I think that the only trick to this business is we're all doing what we love. And most of us are not working in a position where you have somebody helping you retire. Like there's no company telling you you have a 401k and asking you if you want any money. I just want to like encourage people to buy all the gear you want, but you, 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 you're going to work until the day you die if you don't save any money. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I mean, mean that's, that's another thing we have to, we have to set up our own retirement. We have to, we have to know how to, you know, move forward with that. And it's, I mean, I have things set up, but for most, a lot of people, it's not always like, you know, you have to hire people to help you with that. And, you know, like, yeah, you know, these nine to five jobs, like you get your 401k, you get your IRA, but, you know, we have to do that on our own. We have to have our own insurance. We have to have, it can be very stressful and expensive, but that's just a part of, you know, being your own boss and being self-employed. But yeah, yeah, it's, um, it is what it is. <laughs> it, it is what it is. Everybody's got to do it. This has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I know, um, did you recently start a pedal company as well? Yeah, I last year I teamed up with a friend of mine and um I had this like vision to have this really weird fuzz um to use in my new project. Uh I've teamed up with a friend and he did all the circuitry engineering and then I kind of branded it. It's called Doom Child Effects and the pedal is called the Doom Child. Like we've been trying to kind of put it on the back burner, but I want to, I want to do a, I want to do a second one. That's more of a boost. The first one was like, just like a gnarly fuzz, but it's meant to, you put it on top of your main distortion. It just like creates this extremely gnarly fuzz texture, which I've been using a lot in um, so many recordings, but yeah, I I just decided to give it a try and um, only have one left. So I don't know if I'm going to do any more, but yeah, it was just like a fun side hobby thing, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I, just been kind of showing it to clients and, you know, throwing it on whatever production I can that it suits. But I, I love that you have one left. It's like the ultimate limited edition now. <laughs> There's one, yeah. Now true. it's going to be on all your records. People are going to be like, what's that sound? And you're like, I made that sound and it's gone now. Yeah. <laughs> you can buy it on eBay. It's inflated. <laughs> Amazing, dude. This has been uh, this has been a ton of fun. Please tell people uh, where they can find you, anything you want to share, bands you love that you're working with, wh- whatever you want to tell people throw it out there yeah so um coming up when we just had uh, anubis one of my clients they just released their new ep back uh, last month it's called eternal youth eternal night if uh, you want to check that out it's on streaming siglos uh sin kieran's new project he had the first single come out with a great music video a couple months ago if you want to check that out on youtube it's called uh por los siglos and this month i believe another client of mine our Dying World, they're coming out with their new album and a sick video. Also, Zeisenkroy, um, they signed with Pavement Music and they're going to be putting out an EP that we did. I'm not sure when that's going to be released, but that was a great album to work on. I got, I was um, able to work with Tim Palmer. He mixed two of the tracks that I produced um, and they, they came out great. And I mixed uh, three of the other songs. And... Um, I was able to master the album as well. It was pretty crazy, like 
mastering one of Tim Palmer's mixes, uh, to be honest. I was like, can't believe I'm doing this right now. But <laughs> so that's coming out sometime this year. And then my personal project, it's called a Swords to Dominum. And we have a concept EP coming out in June and it's actually two EPs. And um, what's interesting about it is I've had an idea to make one EP. It's like the same songs on each EP. It's four songs. The first EP is called Mortalis. The second one is called Immortalis. But the first one is all the songs without any drum samples, without any editing. It's like the raw, this is how we sound CD. And then the second one is tightly edited, drum samples, extra cinematic production. It's like the hyped up version. So I just... That's fun. so many modern metal productions, they're so overhyped and they're so edited and they're so like hyper sounding, which I like, but I figured it might be cool to have a version of this EP that is more stripped down and more real. So um, I decided to do that. So yeah, they're going to be two digipacks available, Mortalis and Immortalis in, in June, uh, June 17th. It'll be available. And uh, yeah, there's some other stuff I'm forgetting. But if you want to <laughs> check out, um, if you want to follow all the projects, you can check it out at um, alexcrecioni.com. Amazing. That's that's a great idea, especially in the in the metal world where it is hyper chopped and hyper processed. That's a cool concept. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to listen to the, the mortal first and then, and then the immortal. Sweet. Amazing, man. Well, thank you so much. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, I'll put links to as much of that as I can in the in the show notes. But yeah, it's been great. I, I enjoyed hanging. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. Really appreciate yeah. it. I love your yeah. podcast, by the way. I've been like after I <laughs> after I heard about you, and uh, I was like, oh, shit, this podcast is awesome. So I just went back and listened to a bunch of them, and I'm like, yeah, I really I love like all the points you make and all the the detail you go into. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh man, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks. That's it for episode 67. Thanks to Alex Crescioni for coming on the show and hanging out with us. And also, obviously, thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review over on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the most helpful things you can do to support the show. It helps potential guests see that people are enjoying it and also piques the interest of other casual listeners looking for a new show to get into. And finally, as always, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net and join in the conversations there. On that note, I will see you all next time.